I'm a self-confessed radio geek. Already on the series that is Rocket Fuel, this podcast that looks at youth culture and youth marketing, we've had the programme controller from KISS, Andy Roberts. We've had the brains and the genius behind Fun Kids Radio and Folder Media, Matt Deegan. But what I wanted to do in this week's episode was go back a bit. So we've got on a radio consultant called David Lloyd. David does a number of things, but he has, for example, built the Galaxy radio brand in the late 90s and early 2000s. He's also a radio archivist and a radio enthusiast, so he knows a lot about how radio has changed, how radio has morphed, and the effect that radio has had on young people and youth audiences. So... In the next half hour or so, we're going to speak to David about his life, his journey, his knowledge, and then get some practical insights into how best to reach and better understand youth audiences. Here's David Lloyd's Rocket Fuel. The first thing to say is uh, radio consultant David Lloyd, thank you so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. It's a pleasure. David, the first section is all about you, and we want to get to know you a little bit. I know that you're a radio consultant. I know you from the Awesome Radio Moments podcast, the bit of the radio today at the end where you reflect on radio's history. But I also know there's quite a bit more to your life in radio. Do you want to paint a picture for us? Um, How did it all start? Take us up to the present day. Oh, dear. Like many people of my vintage working in radio, I just always wanted to be on the radio. That was a dream. Uh, I read out a poem on my local BBC radio station when I was six, and I think that's when it all started. It was all about the Great Fire of London, actually. Uh, I still remember the lines. And so so just wanted to be on the radio. I was fascinated by radio and used to sort of invent my own in my shed at the bottom of the garden and dreamed of working in it. But it seemed back then, I mean, there were so few radio stations. This is the 60s, of course. You know, mm. BBC local radio was only just starting. Commercial radio has yet to begin. The BBC just about getting to four channels, Radio Luxembourg. That was it. So, you know, being on the radio was a dream and unlikely to be realised. Then my local radio station in Nottingham, Trent, opened up and eventually, age 19, got a gig there. Uh, You know, eventually doing all the things that you do when you get into radio, doing the overnight show with some very interesting listeners, as you do get (laughs) overnight. And, uh, you know, graduating eventually to to mid-mornings, where I took over from Dale Winton. Wow. He was doing the mid-morning show and uh, he, he left. Uh, a contract argument and, uh, <laughs> and I took it over and, uh, and really enjoyed that then moved into uh, across to Leicester Sound and, and sort of through a number of commercial stations into management so being on the air but also into management because you know you get to that stage where you think I could run this better than the people are running it especially when you're in your early 20s and you think you know everything about everything and what did you prefer did you prefer being on air talent do you prefer the station imaging bit and the production bit do you prefer the management bit what, what floated your boat I love it all okay. I mean I, I got to be a programmer and uh, managing director and, and managing and marketing director and and love it all I mean it all boils down to the, the same thing ultimately so love being on air to this day uh, and recently since we sold the last company I've had a chance to do that again which has just been great and, and make lots of podcasts which is great getting back into the creative side but you know through the through the years went on to run uh, Virgin mm-hmm. went on to run LBC run a few of the large galaxy stations before they became capital the, the, the youth brands up in, in, in Yorkshire and Manchester and you know a whole variety of century as well so a whole variety of formats from what, what is called youth through to you know talk 
AC, etc. So a whole variety of, of radio stations. You've worked with some of the biggest brands. You mentioned Virgin, you mentioned Galaxy. They're, some of those brands are, are back again. Some of those brands have, have since disappeared. Was there any kind of when you were getting involved in the brand, how did you get under the skin of what a radio brand meant? When radio, well, when I first got into radio, they weren't really brands. I mean, they were local radio stations, which were enormously popular. Some were popular because they were brilliant. Some were popular because there just wasn't very much else around. You know, you were the only person on FM playing music. You know, radio One wasn't on FM, so they did very well. But some of them, um, you know, b- became brands and understood themselves better because as soon as you get into a more competitive backdrop as we know and radio certainly has in the last 30 years you've got to know who you're talking to who your listener is so it's it's only relatively recently in the last probably third of the life of the radio medium that I think radio stations have begun to consider themselves seriously as brands so the first tier of stations in the 70s and 80s probably not so much although some of them were excellent then you get into Heart and you get into Galaxy and, and all the, the second tier of radio, the so jazz, of mm. course, second tier of radio stations where they have to say, we are something different from the other stations and this is why. And hello, audience, we're more for you than anybody else. That's, I think, when the branding of radio started and some stations have been brilliant at it. And I have to say I was, I was part of the Chrysalis Radio Group, owned by, by, by Chrysalis uh, Records, uh, part of that uh, conglomerate. And, you know, when they created Heart, they knew what they were doing. Mm. And witness Heart today and, and the power of that radio brand, which started off as a single station in Birmingham. Let's focus on you. Have you a mentor or have you ever mentored anybody? I look back at several broadcasters I grew up with and... I think every broadcaster would confess that you are, when you start, you're trying to be them. That, that's what you're trying to do. Right. You, you listen to them and you want to be them and therefore everything you do sounds like them. And gradually you find yourself and the authenticity of yourself. So I've been in, influenced by, I once did a little tweet saying 10% of this person, 10% of that person, yeah. because you, you end up being a bit of mongrel of all the broadcasts you grew up with. Um, in terms of management, I really rated the chrysalis radio management and it wasn't until probably that stage when i realized what brilliant management is you know permissive um in terms of you know giving you the license to get on and and do something and own something and coaching you as an employee to get the best out of you and you know we used to do staff surveys at uh, chrysalis radio and the research company you say these are world class mm-hmm. you know when you've got a hundred percent of your employees saying my boss helps me to do my best work every day that's stunning and that's not it was about the team at the time so my mentor in management i think um phil riley and richard huntingford from from chrysalis without a shadow of a doubt and and, and john myers too for, for a whole host of different reasons oh, three titans of radio absolutely um let's focus on you again are you any good at switching off how, how, how are you balancing your time right now? Have you always been quite disciplined with the working week? Or I suppose you can probably cut your life into different stages in terms of when you're working and, and what you're working on. But how do you structure a week and are you good at switching off? Useless at it. Absolutely useless. I love radio. It has been my life as a child. It's my life now. I'm as excited about what's happening now in the whole audio world as I was 
age six. I do it for a living. I do it for passion. I do my three podcasts for absolutely nothing, just for the, for the hell of it. Mm. Uh, I read about radio all the time. My friends are from radio. I I, I probably have more of a life outside radio in terms of you know, getting off on cruises and doing things. I think I've got a richer life than I had when I, than when I was in my 20s. But nevertheless, radio is through it to an unhealthy extent. I can't switch off. Talk to us about the podcasts. As I was saying, I know you most for radio moments, but uh, which is a weekly digest of things that happened that week in radio. Your clip archive is second to none, and that's yours, isn't it? I mean, that's that's something you own. But there are two other podcasts as well. Yeah, I uh, I, I love radio now, and part of my work is looking forward and, and, and doing that, and, and, and I like to make clear that I am interested in today and tomorrow. However, I also love the past, and we are exiting the most interesting era of radio, you know, the, the the analog era is about to die. The future is is everything digital. It's very different. Many more stations, many more outlets. It's, it's so different. So this era is about to disappear. And I thought, goodness, if somebody doesn't keep it, then all those stories will disappear. All that audio will disappear. Radio stations are moving premises, and they're throwing everything in the skip outside. So if somebody doesn't keep it, it'll be lost. And there are a handful of people around the country who just like to keep this stuff. So what I try to do each week on my Radio Moments This Week in History podcast is say, well, these are the things that happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it is. And I also try and put a little bit of context around it so that if you are one of our younger listeners, you actually get the significance because so many things that happened in 1920 are happening again now. You know, the first ever broadcast was Dame Entertainment Broadcast, Dame Nellie Melbourne, 1920. You know, they brought her over from Australia because she was a big name. Big names mean a lot in radio now. You know, everything comes full circle. So that that history podcast is my clips from, from my bulging hard drive with a bit of narration. I get lovely feedback from it. So that's, that's one of them. The other one, which I'm really proud of, is called Conversations, which is an hour spent with a particular person who has made a difference in radio. So they tend to be people who are, you know, not at the end of their careers, but they've got a lot behind them. And they can look back candidly about the changes, what went right, what went wrong, and open up. And so they're very personal candid accounts of, it's a timeline of radio, but it gives an insight into who they are as well, a little bit like, like, like you're doing here. So that series now into 100 episodes. And, and, you know, doing serious business. And I love the feedback you get from them. And it is very similar to, you know, when you work at a radio station and you have a good relationship with your audience. The way that the audience talks to you via social media or however they get in touch, the tone of communication, really similar from podcasts because they are so targeted so I you know really love doing those podcasts my favorite one of those um was John Revel your interview with him was absolutely outstanding I mean I'm in my early 40s so Chris Evans on the radio one and then Virgin Radio Breakfast Show was if you like he was my everybody has their own doctor who I also theorize everybody certainly of our vintage has their own Radio One Breakfast Show DJ as well or maybe two but Chris Evans was definitely mine and 
hearing insights into that particular era of Blur versus Oasis, Britpop, the Radio 1 Roadshow actually getting cool was just fascinating to hear from the horse's mouth, if you like. Talk to me about John Revel. Tell me about how that meeting came across. Have you known John for a long time? No, I haven't. I mean, with all these, some people I know, and mm. it's really easy to say, can I talk to you for a couple of hours? Other people I have to persuade my way through their door mm. uh, or go through, what I often do is go through somebody else who knows them really well because I do want them to not treat it as an interview. It's, it, it's very much like an autobiography. It's not mm. a journalistic probing. And I say to them, you can, th- this is your account of your life. And I don't contradict them. I don't say, hang on a minute, that isn't true because, because you know, the other side of the story will be in somebody else's edition. So all I do is facilitate. And I always say to them, if you say anything here that you don't want me to put in, I won't put it in. You know, you, you, you choose. And I get a lot of tears. I mean, when I spoke, I've spoken to some people for three and four hours to make the hour-long program. Mm. And they are very exhausting confessions on occasion for some people. Uh, so it's, uh, I don't know why I put all the effort in, but it's, it's, it's just, it's very fulfilling. And I, I always learn, I always learn from them. There's something they say about management, about talent management, about program production. Do you know when somebody expresses something really well and you think, oh, wow, I'm going to mm. borrow that. I always learn something from that. Finally, in this section, I just want to... You're very organised, aren't you, in this podcast? I tried to... We've got curtains coming over between (laughs) the sections. (laughs) We will have it. We we tend to just put music up in between the sections. But we'll say, I just want to ask one question, which is quite a big one, and it's what do you think you're known for? I think I'm known for probably enthusiasm. People always... You know, from companies I've been at, they say, always, always remember your staff meetings when you gave it. I'm thinking, I'm sure, I'm sure I did more than appear at staff meetings, but they sort of, you know, like my appearances and, and energy and positivity. And also the fact, I think that I've been there and done it. You know, when you are talking to top talent and you don't want their job, but you know how they feel, that's, that's a good start because we all know how difficult it is being talent on the radio. Yes, it's a good job. Yes, it's, you know, it can, if you do really well, pay a lot, et cetera, et cetera. But also, gosh, how vulnerable are you? You go on the air, you're on your own, you're speaking to a microphone, you are your product. It is, the product is you as a human being, everything that's wrong and right about it. You are criticized. You are criticized publicly. You are under threat of not having your contract renewed. You know, there is so much pressure about that very odd job of sitting in a studio on your own. And I think when you've done a bit of it, you understand what it feels like to be at the wrong end of it. So I'm still here with the radio consultant, David Lloyd. Um, He's our guest on this week's Rocket Fuel. And we're talking about, in this section, his work, but also the effect that radio has had on young people over the years. David, you've already made the point that perhaps the first tier of radio stations didn't really have a brand because they didn't need to. But you were squarely involved in that second tier of stations. You were part of the team that almost gave birth to Galaxy Radio, for example. So that let, let's focus on Galaxy for, to start with, because that was a real, it, it came from the north. It was a, 
it was a radio brand in itself, but it became more than that. It became associated with live music. When you're sat down with the other people at Chrysalis Radio with a blank pad and a pen to talk about what this brand means, how do you start on that journey? What are the steps you take? I, I was privileged in uh, Yorkshire to inherit Galaxy at a pretty good stage. Mm -hmm. the, the history of the Galaxy station in Yorkshire, now capital, and in Manchester was that they'd been KISS. That both those licenses used the KISS brand under license. When Chrysalis bought them, they had to dispose of that uh, brand overnight and hastily put the Galaxy brand on. And at that stage, KISS was and is great brand. So you can imagine about all the people involved, suddenly that brand's gone and you've got to create something else. So you need to make sure that the something else is pretty good. And the thinkers at Chrysalis, and I'm talking about people like um, Phil Riley, I'm talking about uh, Steve Parkinson, uh, Nick Button, um, at Bauer, the, both at Bauer these days. And yet they knew what they were doing. And also they had, they had the authority to create a brand. And what I mean by that is programmers are, and I am one, very precious souls. And we think we know everything about what goes on air. And we think we probably know a lot about marketing and brand as well. But Chrysalis treated marketing as a very important thing, which was integral to the overall product, rather than, oh, we've got a great radio station, shall we put some ads on buses? You know, marketing was in the right place in that organization. So I'm walking through the door to an organization which attaches value to brand, to marketing, and appreciates that you have to listen to the marketers who know their stuff uh, alongside great programmers. So we walked through the door and I think we had 600,000 listeners at that stage and we dreamt of a million. And, and we, we did a million, we did a million listeners. In fact, I remember distinctly one conversation with a London buyer um, when they said, how many listeners have you got? We said, a million. She said, and they said, no, not, not your TSA size, your audience rate. No, no, a million listeners. Yeah, it was huge. But why that was it? That could have been me that <laughs> I was buying radio planning and buying and doing that exact job yeah, at that exact time. I couldn't time. believe that so many people lived outside London. <laughs> but it was, why, why was it good? It, it took a lot of care to understand who it was talking to and didn't bother about anybody else. And that's, you know, that's the key to great marketing in, in any sector. And it was clearly going youth, um, but it didn't want to be too young. It wanted, nor too old. It needed to be exactly the right place. So, you know, 20 to 29s. It targeted 20 to 29 females. It researched the music and it just obsessed about those individuals. It did a lot, a lot of research, a lot of focus groups. And that was all the sorts of stuff that not many radio companies were doing in, in that way. I say Phil Riley you know, with his MBA and, and everything else, highly qualified. The, the calibre of thinking in that building was great. So I think everybody in that building knew how that brand should behave, what it should do and what it shouldn't do. I'll tell you one story. Have you got time for one story? Definitely. One, one little story. There was a, a wonderful um, uh, competition called Bank It or Burn It. And we were going to give away £5,000 to a listener if they could come up with a reason why they wanted to win £5,000. So we, we picked the best. And this, this woman wanted a, pardon the phrase, boob job. And then the idea was the listeners would decide, she'd make the case for her having this cash to do what she wanted to do with it. And the listeners would decide whether she got the cash or whether they might as well burn it. Well, we, she presented a case and the listeners voted narrowly to burn the cash. So £5,000 being burnt and of course then we're thinking okay we've got to do it. now we'd already checked out the legals before it is it is legal to 
to burn currency. Um, we did actually get a police officer at the door who said, we, we've been told you're burning currency, you're not allowed to. And I said, no, it's not illegal. And he went away. I thought, I'll use that again. Wow. Um, anyway, so um, we, we, you know, just imagine the morning. So we've got it all set up. We're going to burn it on the council bonfire. Then they kick off and they say, we've had lots of complaints. You know, you could give the money to underprivileged children, but you're not burning a damn bonfire. So we can't do it there. Then we find somewhere else to burn it. Etc. So this is going on for days and days. And the furore locally yeah. is building and building. Clients are saying, we're going to pull all our money out. If you burn that money, it's a waste of money. My sales manager is getting really irate about it. Everything's kicking off. Um, Newsnight got involved. They had a vicar on saying, I want them to promise never to do this ever again. You know, the whole world is kicking off. This radio station that's daring to burn £5,000. So we have the morning, and I'm sitting there in Manchester thinking, OK, are we going to do it? Are we the radio station that's going to say, actually, do you know what? We've given it to so-and-so. And at that moment in history, with that brand, in that era, we said, what do our listeners want? They want to burn it because that's the sort of galaxy listeners there are. So we did. So we actually burnt £5,000. That was right for that audience at a time. Would Now, come to today, think of the values of today's team. Oh. You would not dream of doing that. You really would not dream of doing that. But it was right for that brand to when behave was in this? that way. What era? This was in 2003, and Yeah. Mm. Okay. That's, see, it's funny that you jumped into a, a promotional idea because my next question was going to be around sponsorship and promotions. Because the other thing, just focusing on the Galaxy brand, was that it made money. <laughs> it was, it was profitable. Well, it, it, it did, and it was well run. It didn't make anywhere near as much money as it should. It found that audience, and this is one of the, the, the challenges of radio, it found that audience really difficult to sell. That younger audience, uh, locally uh, and nationally, it was difficult to sell, nationally principally, because the Galaxy brand was huge, but not huge in London. Mm. And, you know, we dreamed of having Galaxy London because only by having Galaxy London would the other big galaxies around the country make any money. Of course, what's happened is the inverse has happened, but it's the same effect. The capital brand known in London has become the Galaxy brand. So that did happen. It was a challenge making the rights, getting the right sort of yield from that significant audience. From a creative marketing point of view, Chrysalis were really well known for their sponsorships, for their promotions. I actually worked on the opening of Selfridges in Birmingham back in the day that Galaxy had to break into Selfridges in Birmingham, the, the breakfast show team. And I remember the creative execution. Chrysalis kind of paved the way a bit for radio promotions as they are now, the guest brand being part of that relationship with the listener. As a programmer, as an as a on-air talent, how aware are you of the need to incorporate third-party brands into the discourse and dialogue with your listener? It's a really good question. And thankfully, we have had, I used to be a regulator, um, but the Ofcom were very forward-looking in when they liberalized the rules about radio because up until relatively recently, you could only sponsor something, it, you know, they, they just put, put a name across it, which isn't terribly exciting for anybody. When Ofcom changed the rules five or six years ago now, might be a few more, um, you know, it's like when you get old, uh, <laughs> when they liberalised and said, essentially, so long as you're open with the audience and they know that somebody's paid a bill, you do what you like, as long as it's legal, decent, honest and truthful. So at that stage, 
the doors were open and you were free as a radio programmer rather than have endless dull things or features created for the sake of it, just as some sort of subterfuge to get the brand in, you could sit down and say, okay, where can I take this brand? What can I do with it? And that is the most expensive place. If I have a criticism of British radio, I think we haven't taken enough advantage of those freedoms. Certainly when I was working at uh, Orion Media, which, which owns the, the, the Midland stations before they were sold to Bauer. So this is you know, the old uh, B&B and Mercia and Beacon, which we, we changed to free radio. Uh, when we were running those, we really said, okay, what can we now do when we've got a client through the door? What can we now do? You know, we, we got a vet. So we get a vet. You know, are we going to do Lost and Found, sponsored by Vet? No, no, that's very 1980s. We're going to do the doggy wedding. We'll find two dogs and we'll marry them. And we did that and we staged the whole event, you know. And the Vet was coming in. The Vet became part of the star, part of the plot. And also, where does it start? Does it start with, here's a new promotion all about Vets. It starts with, you know, Jock's just talking about dogs and then getting married and I tell you what's happened. Here's the next stage. It becomes a story arc. It becomes a great piece of compelling radio. And I tell you what, we need to do more of that because we will reach a time when if we carry on having 15 minutes of interruptive ads in an hour of commercial radio, we will die. Mm. I think... I think you're right in terms of the creativity needed in radio and also the direction of travel in radio. I just want to touch on something while we're, while we're talking on the other radio brands. Is there a brand that you've admired from afar that you've not worked on? Or are there many num any number of brands in, in the radio world that you thought, oh, I wish I could have done something with that? That's a good question. Um, I, th I wish I'd been more part of Heart. I mean, Heart was part of our stable, but, but wasn't one of my babies. I did LBC, I did Galaxy, but uh, didn't manage to get a hand in Heart. Uh, so that's probably the reason why it's been so successful. <laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, other people's brands, I I like Virgin, but was privileged enough to, to, to play a part in it's the very end of its life. Because I think Virgin at Golden Square, the original Virgin, again, very forward-looking, very you know, up with digital media long before it was mm. fashionable to do so. So I think Virgin I admired from afar. As I say, I just got there right at the, the tail end. And Radio 1. I think Radio 1 is uh, and is always in an interesting place, both privileged and both with all the the challenges and issues that stem from being a public broadcaster. But I think the team at Radio 1 are, I think they're pretty canny at the moment. Let's focus on the challenge. Seeing as you brought it up, I want to, if it's all Don't right, I'd love me. to focus on the challenges of that the BBC are facing. We've The BBC are in the news right now. Lots and lots of people, funnily enough, I was listening to the Radio Today podcast just this morning and it had Ian Dale talking about what public service BBC Radio 1 is offering. I actually am of the opinion that next to the welfare state, the BBC and Radio 1 particularly are the reason why we so outperform our, our worth in the world of music. But also when Newsbeat lasts 15 minutes on Radio 1, it is doing a public service. It does have campaigns for the, be for the greater good. Where's your view? Because you're from the world of commercial radio, so there must be a, a little bit of you that begrudges the BBC. There often is. But do you, do you see the BBC Radio 1 as fulfilling a public service remit? Absolutely. I am a huge, huge fan of the BBC. It's only by luck, accident, that I spend much of my life in commercial radio. I have done quite a bit of work um, more recently for, for the BBC and have always admired it from afar. I mean, if you look through what it's achieved over the years 
and now. It is phenomenal and we are extremely privileged to have it. And you know, I say that without qualification and it is a good thing and I want it to survive and I'll campaign naked down Hyde Park to, to stick up for it. But, um, you know there's going to be a but, the model, of course, was from a bygone age when it had a monopoly. The funding model, the way it's set up, the way it's run, and it's it's just too expensive. And I think if you, you know, people from the BBC will listen to this and think, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I think I do. You, you get used to the level of resource you have and you can't believe it can be anything other. But it really can. And I think there are a lot of people in the BBC who probably think, you know, there are a few people, frankly, that just make my job more difficult rather than easier. Because, you know, editorial calls made and then unmade by four different people, five different bosses. Life just gets very complicated. The broadcaster gets less agile and the BBC needs to be agile now. It needs to respond. It needs to do things quickly. And I think it's it's cumbersome. It's it's just over managed in, in a lot of ways. And... Having said that, so are all, and this is not my line of the BBC, so are all big organisations. And sometimes that gilding of the resource pays dividends and the output is so stunning you think, well, they can afford to do that and they've done it brilliantly and it's worth every penny. Other times you think, have they really taken that many people to do that simple job? Yeah. Uh, and that's when it, that's the only stage where it gets annoying. And why am I annoyed? I'm annoyed because unless it sorts itself out, it is vulnerable. And if it's vulnerable, we will lose what is brilliant about what it does. And I think I could look at Radio 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. They do a lot of public service stuff and they do it well. You know, we, we don't want them to be so worthy nobody listens. I mean, if you look what Alan's been doing, the, the stuff we did with New Talent over Christmas, and some of those great ideas they do, yeah. they're doing them. I, I would say Radio 1 is more of a focused radio station that understands its audience, that's thinking about what it's doing more so than possibly ever in its history before. Forgive me, let's have a quick chat on Radio 2 then, because I think Radio 1, you and I are fairly aligned on in how it could be more streamlined, it could be more refined, but it's doing a great job. Radio 2, when I'm in the pub defending the Sorry, BBC, my comments on resources there were BBC Radio BBC, yeah, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Radio 2 has less of a public service value. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it does a few things, doesn't it? Uh, 500 words competition and a few specialist shows, but not many now. But the music offering is fairly diverse. It will proudly talk about how many songs it's playing that commercial radio isn't. And yep. it'll talk about the library, it's a larger library. So I think, again, Radio 2 is is a good thing. I think, you know, can anyone really say Radio 2 is exactly like another commercial radio station? I don't think we can. I think actually it is performing something which is very different and which is clearly valued. Will that radio station ever be as large as it was under the Wogan Evans era? No. And that's no insult to, 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 to Zoe or anybody else or the controller. It's just the fact that that, again, was a time and a place. Commercial radio now can have national brands and DAB now is, is of the stature that, that it can deliver significant audiences. Therefore, BBC Radio will never be as big as it has been. And that's, that's not wrong. That's just the way of the world. But I think Radio 2 is actually reasonably distinctive. Do they push? Of course, they all push their limits, don't they? And so would I if I were. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do a bit of future gazing. Let's look at the future and how radio is changing. Um, 
the, the Times were about to launch a radio station. There were, the Virgin Radio has come back, um, and it's been back for a while, but it's come back in a big way with Chris Evans and, and with News UK kind of supporting it. Um, what's the direction of travel as it relates to radio and more broadly audio in, in the UK and, and for youth audiences for that matter? What are your big, bold predictions? If you look at the uh, share of ear, which everybody loves these statistics, don't they? Mm. So, you know, put all the audio together, what proportion does live radio own? What proportion do podcasts own? Uh, streaming, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, live radio is hugely dominant, you know, three quarters or whatever of, of listening ears. So live radio is huge. If you read the trade press, that doesn't really come across. Radio has always been the unsung hero for a hundred years. No one has ever credited radio with the power, the influence, the stature, the size that it enjoys. Um, and, and, and that's still absolutely huge. Other things are commanding a share of people's ear time now. Obviously, streaming is significant now. Owned music is, 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 is you know, appreciable still podcasting, audiobooks, etc. So if, if that's the, the pie chart, I'm imagining this colourful pie chart yeah. in front of me, if that's the pie chart, how will that look in five years' time? This is what will happen. Live radio will diminish. It will still be significant in five years' time, but it will diminish. Streaming will grow. It's already a significant part of the pie. That is going to, that is going to grow. And you can already see the 1524s actually taking a you know, significant share of that. Uh, podcasting will probably grow uh, thanks to quality podcasts like this. <laughs> um, by possibly the biggest proportion from a very small base, audiobooks will grow, um, listen again will will grow and then probably stabilise. So we've got you know, streaming growing, live radio diminishing, uh, and owned music uh, diminishing too. That's that's what you know, I put my life on. That's that's what it will look like in in a few years' time, and you know that will continue to to, to change. Uh, live radio will continue to play a large part. You asked there about younger audiences, and of course they are driving the change. Um, uh, podcasting doing particularly well young. Again, you know, it's nowhere near the size of young people no. for radio listening, but nevertheless, sure. that they are really keen on their on their podcasting, and they're really keen on their streaming. And we know if we look at Rajar audience figures that although the uh, all adult reach of radio remains comfortingly close to 90 uh, the sort of 1524 reach is, is is nearer sort of 78, you know. So it's uh, quite a difference. And that's down from 80-something 10 years ago back in, in 2009. So you know that the 15 to 24 audience reach is is coming down. That's heading down. Um, perhaps more demonstrably that the level of loyalty those people have, the amount of hours they give to radio is coming down. I want to make the point that it's still huge. You know, anyone who thinks young people don't listen to radio is talking absolute tosh. It's still mega, but it's coming down. And young people are finding other things to do. And frankly, is it surprising? Life's a lot more exciting than when I was 15. <laughs> so you're, you're a radio pioneer. You're a radio maverick. Whenever you look at radio pioneers and radio mavericks, they always want less molding they want less management less bureaucracy in the way but it strikes me as though you have a really healthy relationship with data you've already spoken about focus groups being a positive thing it strikes me as though deep down whilst you're a you're you've been an on-air talent you you understand the need to both research an audience and have 
a defined reason for making a decision with the radio brands that you've worked on and more broadly. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, unkindly, I think people define radio programmers, which is what I, I spent most of my life doing, yeah. as being research driven or gut feel. Uh, Richard Park, the finest radio programmer of all time, is, I think, in, you know, an informed gut um, for the benefit of the listener, a, Richard Park is you know, capital, cap- capital global senior programmer. He was the one who took magic to the top. He took capital to the top. You know, you can't flaw his 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 achievements. Certainly, uh, interesting character in, in so many ways, but you can't flaw his his achievements. And he, I think, is 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 a, and his gut's never wrong. And it's so annoying. He knows <laughs> he when, when when he bought um, uh, LBC and and Heart and everything off us. He walked through the door and described where he saw LBC, and I look, I hear it now, and it's exactly that. Take it in great hands with James Rea, but he he had the right vision for that brand. So he was a, he was a gut programmer, and you get the research ones who just you know just say the re- research tells them what to do, and you know you can't do that because all the research tells you is how listeners feel about what they've already heard. You can't t- you got to ask them to tell you what should be on the radio in ten years time. So I think healthy programmers take. Um, uh, a, a view of both, and I, I hope that by everything I've watched, learned, and heard, I've got a pretty good instinct. And I like to check it out where you can check it out. So yeah, I've been involved in so much research. But the, the last company, Orion, was private equity funded. They liked graphs, and probably fairly uncomfortable with the, the arty world of radio. So if ever I could do a bar graph, they were very pleased. So we did <laughs> lots of bar graphs about lots of things. And, you know, frankly, I, I've moderated so many focus groups. I love moderating focus groups. And I, I take a pride in being um, completely um, uh, independent as I sit there moderating the conversation, asking about things I know far well about. But um, I've never walked out of a focus group without thinking, we've got to change that. And we've got to change that tomorrow. Because there's just something sometimes, there's, there's a small things, but you think, oh, that's so blindingly obvious. Give what? me an example. I'm fascinated. Oh, just things about how you go into the news and how people view news bulletins. And um, uh, yeah, where, and also this thing about how they, um, their relationship with the presenter Sometimes it just features, and sometimes you, you know, you've ditched a feature because you're all sick of it, and you just know the audience absolutely loves it. You think, why the devil have we done that when it's the biggest thing, and it still crops up, you know, seven years after we ditched it? Why do we ditch it? We're idiots. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when you hear these on-air radio duke boxes, i.e., present uh, stations without presenters. Do you think there's a place for that, or do you think that's where streaming services should be? Do you think? Do you think a radio station can be a radio station without a presenter on it? Yeah. Early on, I, I drew this imaginary bar chart of streaming and live radio and podcasts. But, you know, frankly, they're all going to come together. You know, great music radio stations with presenters doing very little are precariously close to streaming services. And streaming services often are miraculously programmed by radio programmers and use algorithms, music research, radio. Yeah, it's all actually coming together. And as a listener... They don't give a toss. It's yeah. stuff for their ears. So I don't think um, anything's under threat or one thing's becoming another. I think they're all part of a continuum. And some radio stations are brilliant because the presenters don't talk a lot and don't interrupt too much. However, the art, as we know, the art of doing the short, tight link that actually just, listen to Capital. I mean, how beautiful those guys 
are when they make 20 seconds really add to the feeling, the brand, the spirit of that radio station, how they sell in the music. That's all part of it. But, you know, other, other streams don't need to have presenters either. As a programmer, when you hear of song choice, a track that somehow made the playlist that sounds out of place, how does it make you feel? I mean, I'm talking, and it was a conscious decision when Virgin Radio took a slight turn. I'm probably talking early to mid 2000s now, where they were playing brands like the uh, bands like the All Saints, for example, and it just sounded wrong. I don't know whether it was Medium Wave and the All Saints. I don't know, but how? I suppose it leads me to this. Does it does it make you with a if you like a a trained ear? Does it stand out to you more than it does to us as Joe Public? And how important is the music choice as part of building a radio station brand? If you're a music radio station, the, the music is, is everything. And because of that, I never program it. Uh, you know, I've always hired <laughs> extremely capable. Um, you know, there's James Curran at, uh, I didn't hire James, but um, you know, he's a remarkable performer at, uh, at, at Absolute. Um, you know, there are the, Toby McKenzie at, uh, at Free Radio and at Bauer, some, some great people who really understand where music is. And they've got their hands on all the available data. There's more data than ever before now because you've got Spotify and Shazam and all these. It's not just the charts. You know, you've got your own music research and a whole lot of other touch points. So you can actually, uh, you know, look at the PR, look at the, the social media around artists, all those things that feed into choosing the right. So I hire the right music programmer and let them get on with it. And so long as I'm happy that A, they know what they're doing and B, they've got a strategy, then I will leave them to it. And only if I think the strategy has changed or, or there's been strategy creep and that there, there, there isn't a reason for that. That's when I would start to worry about it. You know, you mentioned Galaxy again. There was a stage where Galaxy was perhaps um, trying to be too mainstream. There was an era that they, there, these years, I remember the phrase now, they were called, when we tell the Galaxy story, they refer to as the Shania Twain years. And, <laughs> and, and, and these are the, you know, when it was going too mainstream. And similarly, Hart at one stage was trying to really rival capital. Both mm. of those things didn't work. You know, that's when you would look at the music and say, hang on a minute. I don't think that's right. But that's more as a, a programmer than a music programmer. Yeah, understood. Let's look at um, one last question on the Galaxy brand, only because it's one that I'm kind of familiar with and, and I know you're a huge part of. When you're looking at brand extensions for a radio brand, so Galaxy was huge in Ibiza, um, for example, how how are you building block? I mean, were you ever were you ever asked to create Galaxy TV? Were you ever asked to do? I know there were Galaxy Club nights. When do you start saying no? I suppose is the question. What defines the brand? Things you do or things you don't do? Increasingly, brands, I think, radio sensible radio brands are flexible and they push themselves into different places beyond radio. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. And and that is wise. But you know, you've got to work out what is right for you, both as a brand and economically. Where, where can you afford to do it? It might be lovely to have a TV channel, but if it's not doing very well, um, nobody's watching it, it's not a very good idea. So you know, you've got to work out where the right place for your efforts uh, is. And it's interesting, isn't it, hearing Absolute Radio you know, spinning off all their various stations. I mean, an absolutely inspired strategy started by, by Clive Dickens and, and, and continued 
excellently by, by Paul Sylvester and Tony Mori and, and, and the team there now. And, you know, they've managed to do that because actually each one of those genre offshoots still, it's got that sort of absolute value through it, like a bit of sticker rock, not least because they share some, uh, you know, breakfast entertainers. Uh, so they've, they, 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 you know, so it's a name that you can actually push quite easily, can't you? Absolute. But uh, they, they've done it wisely, I think. Final question in this section, just on your expertise and on your work. Uh, I want to touch on the world of podcasts. Um, they don't, it works, but it doesn't properly work because the discoverability, I think only last week it came out, there are 900,000 active podcasts, something like that, globally. Discoverability still doesn't quite work. And for any brands jumping on the podcast bandwagon, they're going to be put off coming into this space because of the low numbers. And then they're going to think, well, I'm not going to touch podcast. Broadly, our audience is marketeers, people that work in youth, people that work in media and in creativity. What do you think is going to change in podcasts? Do you, or, or do you think anything has to? Do you think it's going to be niche content at scale and it's going to be a multiple choice of podcast listening? It's, um, it's books, isn't it? You know, you will have some huge podcasts just as you have some huge book titles, but something like, uh, I think it's 95% of all books sell under a thousand copies. Can I just say mine sell more than that? Nice. Um, but, uh, you know, most books don't sell very many, and that's fine. No, no problem with that. We'd have to reinvent the book. That's fine. So, some, some won't make any money. Uh, very small audiences. Uh, and you'll have some big titles. And I think that will be the same with podcasting. You will have some mega names, but they will have to be. Uh, very well known, you know. The I, I think they'll be driven by brand and by profile, and increasingly by profile. You know, human beings, probably less by channels. Radio has been defined by radio channels. You know, I I, I have an avid listener to radio, whatever it is, and I don't think that loyalty will exist. You will have loyalty probably to a brand that provides the entertainment, which may or may not be a brand that's currently in radio, and. The big names, you know, um, I, if I ask my smart speaker to, if, if I ask Trevor McDonald to tell me the news, you know, that's, I don't think he's going to get that gig now, is he? But, um, you know, that, that sure. sort of thing, uh, because you will have to, particularly in the smart speaker world, and, and that's the world we'll be in, you will walk into a room, you will call for the piece of audio, and if you don't know what that audio is, then you're dead. So it'll be, it'll be brand awareness, it'll be name awareness. Final question in this bit. You've mentioned your book. Um, is what's next for you? Is it is it more books? Is it more podcasts? Is it more radio consultancy? What, what what does the future hold? I'm loving it at the moment because a lot of people are inviting me to to come and uh, you know write a report. I've worked for regulators and trade bodies and radio stations and groups on lobbying and coaching and all sorts of things, and I'm loving that. And the lovely thing is when you. Uh, get to my stage of, of life. Now I'm 33. <laughs> the lovely thing is that you can pick and choose. Only work with people that you enjoy working with, which is which is what I'm doing. And I don't think um, I would love to run BBC Local Radio. That's one thing I would love to do. I don't think they want me, so it's un unlikely to happen. <laughs> uh, but you know, apart from that gig, I can think of very few full-time gigs that I'd like. I'm just enjoying enjoying myself and I love writing and I love producing stuff and it's great to have time to do that. So I'm here with David Long 
uh, section three of Rocket Fuel is all about getting practical insights, actionable things from David's experience of working in the world of radio, in the world of youth brands that our audience in the world of media, marketing, youth, tech, a bit of creativity can use in their daily lives to talk to youth audiences and better understand youth audiences. So let's start with a big question in this bit. David, what do you know about young audiences? I know as much as I need to know for the clients I deal with, I hope. <laughs> but hey, who really understands youth audiences? You guys do, and, and you know, you're making a living out of it because people realise that you need to specialise in it because it is a different world. And I think the danger I find with a lot of people in my world is that we're trying to apply yesterday's answers to today's solutions and it's just not the same anymore. When I give a presentation on this, I say, actually, we are where we are in radio because of where we were. Radio sets you look like radio sets because once they needed a big speaker and big components, and that's why they look like radios, they don't need to anymore. Radio stations used to be local. Why were they local originally? Because the transmitters actually weren't very powerful. Radio was linear once because it had to be linear because there's no other way of doing it. So all the things that you hold dear about radio, which define the comfortable... When I say the word radio, the picture you have, that, that all the things that define that are because of yesteryear. And that just isn't the case. We're in a new world where, you know, young people, the relationship a young person has with radio will not be the same uh, as as we had. And we mustn't expect them to be. I, I, I've spoken to some people and they say, oh, goodness, we really need to fight for the young audience and get them away from social media and onto our radio station. I'm thinking, you're not going to do that with the best will in the world, you know, they're not going to come through the door because you create a youth spot. You know, you've got to look at what, where my brand is, where should it live in audio and other places, whether that's video, whether that's gaming, and be happy about that. You've got to go where they live. We had Andy Roberts on this very podcast um, at the, right at the start of the series, actually, when he was still at KISS. And um, he, he made that exact point that, that KISS shouldn't see itself as a radio brand. It has to see itself as a lifestyle brand living in various different places and radio being one of those places. Um, looking at youth audiences, what do you think's changed about the way that they behave and what do you think will change next? They are clearly impatient and they want gratification straight away. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the, the things like today's hits and where the hooks are in the songs, they're straight away. You know, you, they get straight down to it. They get in, out and gone. And similarly on radio teasing, we used to say, hey, you'll hear more about that in 20 minutes. And you've got this and thinking, oh, if you're going to be funny, can you be funny now, not in 20 minutes? I've got a life to lead. So they are busy, very busy. And also, if you look back years ago, you'd read the newspaper on the train and when you'd finished, you'd look out the window because you had time. There's no more time. There's no more time in these lives. Those young lives are full of stuff. And everything you do will be at the expense of something else. So you are competing against everything else they have in their life. And I think that will be the, the biggest difference. Who gets it right and who gets it wrong? I'm talking organisations. I might be talking radio stations. I might be talking brands. I might be talking anywhere. Who do you think does a great job of communicating with youth? That's a very good question. I can't think of an answer off the top of my head. Who do you think? 
I think Radio One do it really well. Radio One, obviously. I think Radio One's really good. Um, I thought you were talking about brands outside radio. Yeah, outside of radio, I think there are some YouTuber and Instagram influencers and some TikTokers that put as much effort into understanding their own brand. What you were saying about a radio presenter is you're you're vulnerable. they're they're, They're all... about brand me, aren't they? Exactly. They are, they are, without putting labels on it, they know who they are and what is absolutely right. I once sat in a podcast studio guesting on another person's podcast to talk about influencer marketing. And it, we were talking about how brands can best utilize influencers. This is about four or five years ago. And I was lucky enough to be with the influencer, Hannah Witten, who's brilliant and has really done so much about body positivity, so much about sex education. She's re- she's a great role model for, for young women. And I said to her, I bet you found that really boring, didn't you, talking about the brand stuff? And I've never felt more crushed inside than when she said, looked at me sort of quite rightly perturbed and went, no, it's my job. And the understanding of both their brand, their content, and the commercialization. I think we have a lot to learn from what's loosely termed the influencer economy. So that's my answer. And I think that there's a lot of negativity, some of it quite rightly around when influencers become celebrities and when they're, but yeah, my answer would be some of the influencers out there, I think do a great job. And in terms of brands, it's the ones that can harness that in the right way. So yes, absolutely. I I, I totally agree. one takeaway for everybody listening, David, what do you think from our conversation would you like to leave in the minds of our audience? I think it's increasingly about treatment because everything now is everywhere. You know, if you want to find content about something, you can easily find that. And what distinguishes the content that people choose from the rest of the content is the, the, the treatment and how it's dealt with. And I always say to presenters, you know, you're talking about this topic. Okay, everybody's talking about that. Your job as a highly paid entertainer is to put a better spin on it, to come up with an angle on it, a treatment for it that's better than anybody else's. So don't think too much about what you're doing. Think about how you're doing it. And I think that applies to everybody who's communicating, whether it's in radio or in other media. Okay, that's a great takeaway. David, for a start, can you remind the listeners of the title of your book so that they can buy it right now? Thank you. Um, available on Amazon. There's the one on techniques and radio, which I wrote for not, not just newcomers, but anybody in, in radio at the moment. And I, I spoke to lots and lots of practitioners for it as well. That's called Radio Secrets. That's all about radio techniques and, frankly, podcasting techniques. And, and, and there's a lot about podcasting in there as well because you know, there clearly are a lot of similarities. That's, that's Radio Secrets. And the other one is called Radio Moments, which is very dull. And it's all about uh, my life sort of also telling the story of radio over the last 50 years. It's a, it's a bit biographical and uh, hopefully it'll make you smile. As well. I have read Radio Moments. I will read Radio Secrets. Thank so you. there we go. David, if you want people to get in touch with you, where can they get in touch with you? Where will they find you? Go to my website at uh, davidlloydradio.com. Brilliant. And thank you so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. Thank you, James. Sorry if David and I went into the weeds a bit on radio there. Um, You can tell that I'm almost as big a geek as he is, and I say that in the most affectionate way possible. I genuinely have read one of his books. I wasn't just saying that, and it's a brilliant read, and I'd urge you to read it. I'd also urge you to share this with any radio geek in your life, or indeed anybody that better wants to understand 
how to generate and create that kind of youth brand, the likes of Galaxy, even the likes of Virgin that he spoke about. I hope that conversation worked well for you. Do give us a five-star review. Do share this podcast and tune in next week for more Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.